will come as no surprise to you, and I invite you to turn your Bibles open with me to the book of Isaiah this morning. We've been making our way through this magisterial book for a year and a half now, and have found it to be true that, uh, as it is said, Isaiah is uh, a, a Bible in miniature form. We're going to pick up this morning at uh, verse 9 of chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 9, we're going to read from there through the 57th chapter, and then we'll be making a jump all the way to the 66th chapter. So when you found the 56th, maybe you put a marker there at the 66th, uh, where we'll be going this morning as well. Now there is much here that we have heard uh, before in Isaiah, uh, in these sermons over the past year and a half. So I'll not be uh, preaching on those points, Uh, rather I'll be preaching specifically on just a few verses from this reading. But because God blesses the reading of his word as well as the preaching of it, let's come with open ears and hear uh, what he has to say, beginning at verse 9 of chapter 56 and after we've prayed. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your spirit to come and to Help us as we humble ourselves before you and listen to your word. We are not to to stand in judgment of it. We are to be uh, under its judgment. Uh, We are not to operate upon it. It is to operate upon us. But if that will be the case, our Father, we're going to have to come with uh, submissive hearts. And if that's going to be the case, your spirit is going to have to give it to us. So we pray that he will now and open our ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 56, we'll begin at verse 9. All you beasts of the field, come to devour. All you beasts of the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes. And no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you, draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot, To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? 
On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it, you have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom do you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me? Did not lay it to heart. Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and do you not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off, a breath will take them away, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his ways but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace. Peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked... I like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Now to Isaiah chapter 66. We'll read just two verses. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, And the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. This is the one on whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. And trembles at my word. In a culture that so often rewards the proud, writes C.J. Mahaney in his book entitled simply Humility, 
In a culture that so often rewards the proud, a world quick to admire and applaud the prideful, a world eager to bestow the label great on these same individuals, humility occasionally attracts some attention. Take, for example, the best-selling book, Good to Great. Since 2001, this leadership manual from Jim Collins has become one of the most popular and influential in the business world. I rarely meet a leader, continues Mahaney, who hasn't read it. The book is driven by this question. Can a good company become a great company? And if so, how? Well, to find the answer, Collins and a team of researchers spent five years studying 11 corporations that had made the leap from good to uh, great. I had the chance to hear Jim Collins speak on this topic to an audience of pastors and business leaders. In his presentation, Collins identified two specific character qualities shared by the CEOs of those good-to-great companies. The first was no surprise. These men and women possessed incredible professional will. They were driven, willing to endure anything to make their company a success. But the second trait these leaders had in common wasn't something the researchers expected to find. These driven leaders were self-effacing and modest. They consistently pointed to the contribution of others and didn't like drawing attention to themselves. The good to great leaders never wanted to become larger than life heroes, writes Collins. They never aspired to put, to be put on a pedestal or become unreachable icons. They were seemingly ordinary people, quietly producing extraordinary results. When Collins interviewed people who worked for these leaders, he says that they continually used words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe in their own clippings, and so on, to describe them. Here it appears is open acknowledgement of humility's value, recognition that humility works that it goes farther in building respect for those who have it and in inspiring trust and confidence from people around them. Yes, says Mahaney, amazingly, humility sometimes attracts the world's notice. But here is something more astonishing by far. Humility gets God's attention. Mahaney's right, of course. It does get God's attention where he sees humility. He takes note. The humility of Mary, just to pick an example, certainly uh, held, grabbed his attention and would become the mother of his son. That humility did not escape the notice of God. 
Here in Isaiah 66, God just says it right out, and, and I could multiply the passages for you this morning that say exactly the same thing. But this is the one on whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Not only that, but back in verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. Now stop right there. Is there anything surprising about that, about what we've read to that point? He is high, he is lifted up, he inhabits eternity, his name is holy. All those things being true of him, it comes as no surprise to us that he should dwell in the high and holy place. I mean, where else would he dwell? (laughs) You wouldn't expect him to live in the slums. But go on. You missed this the first time, maybe. Don't let this get past you again. I dwell in the high and holy place, verse 15, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. He lives in the high and holy place where we'd expect him to live. And he lives with the lowly and the contrite. Now put it all together. God takes note of the humble. It is humble people on whom he loves to look. And not only on whom he looks, but with whom he loves to live. Now tell me, Christian, what in all the world could you possibly want more when you are thinking rightly than these two things that God should look upon you and that he should live with you. Isn't that the very sum and substance of blessedness, of good, of of bene toward you? That is why in the benediction, the pronouncement of good upon you at the end of the worship service, why it culminates with the look of God upon you, the lifting up of God's countenance Upon you, there can be no greater blessedness in the world than that the Lord should look on you with his unfailing grace, with his mercy ever new, with his unchanging love, and that he should dwell with you, that he should live with you. These things he does. He says, with The humble. His bene, his good, his blessing rests on those who are humble and contrite. Now, if that is the case, if God blesses the humble, looks on the humble, loves to dwell with humble people, what do you want to be? What will you want to be? Well, in a word, humble. But what is humility? What what are you after here? Let me begin by defining it 
against its opposite, which is pride. Pride, according to the Bible, is thinking too highly of yourself. That, my friends, is, is everywhere. Uh, Friday evening, I had uh, and about a dozen uh, truckers with me. We're enjoying a Bible study from all different parts of the world. One trucker in Los Angeles, the other in Atlanta, another in Grand Rapids, another in Nashville, another in Fort Wayne, all dozen or so of us on the phone having a Bible study on the road. And we were taking turns, one after another, recalling to each other different examples of pride in the Bible. And um, and the list became very long in short order. Uh, one of the drivers, of course, mentioned that Satan fell because of his pride. And then uh, we talked about the pride that must certainly have been at the root of Adam's sin. And then we uh, thought of Nimrod, and then of David, and Adonijah, whom the Scripture says because of his pride uh, rose up, and Absalom, and Hezekiah, and Nebuchadnezzar, and Jezebel, and James, and John. Remember them? Asking for special places in the kingdom of God? What prideful and arrogant things to do. And Diotrephes was mentioned, and the list went on and on. Pride, in all of their cases, was the sin of thinking too highly of themselves, and the universal effect was that it separated them from God, either permanently or at least temporarily threw up a wall between themselves and God. Humility is nearly the opposite, but not quite. Pride is thinking too highly of yourself, but that doesn't make humility thinking too lowly of yourself. Humility, in other words, is not false modesty. It's not an excellent musician saying that he doesn't play very well, or a beautiful woman saying that she's ugly. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Do not imagine that if you met a really humble man that he would be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be some sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. That's not humility. Humility, rather, is thinking rightly of yourself. That's what humility is, thinking rightly of yourself. Humility, someone has written, is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. It's assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. That is humility. And when I think of that, I think of John Newton. Remember the slave trader turned minister? Author of one of our favorite hymns. Toward the end of his life, when he was an old man, he once said to a Christian friend whom he met in the street, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. That's humility in a nutshell. The humble person looks at himself, looks at herself, and sees a sinner. Plain and simple. 
But then she looks immediately at her Savior and remembers that though she is a great sinner, Christ is a great Savior. At a given time, the habit of humility takes one's eyes off of the sinner, off of self, altogether. Luther goes on in his description of a humble person. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took real interest in what you said to him. He'll not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking of himself at all. He will not. Of course he won't. He'll be thinking about Christ. He'll be thinking about Christ's love. He'll be thinking about his salvation through the cross of Christ. Remember Paul to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Every day, from the first ring of the alarm clock, I'm a sinner, but I have a great Savior. Walking down the street, Christ. Conversing with friends, Christ. Praying, Christ. In thoughts, Christ. In work, Christ. In play, Christ. So how are we doing? When God looks at Christ's Presbyterian church, what does he see? His eyes move about the earth. Are they caused to pause here in this congregation, drawn by the kind of humility that demands his attention? that draws his gaze, that he loves to see, where he then therefore desires to dwell. Can we be described, to use his words here, as contrite and of a lowly spirit, and therefore those whom he loves to revive? Let me be perfectly frank dear flock, about this matter, and may I begin with myself. I think far too much and far too highly of myself and far too little and far too seldom of Christ. During that Bible study I mentioned on Friday night that I mentioned a few moments ago, that is, one of the men who were asking the question said something like this. He said, brothers and sisters, without mentioning names, can you think of someone who is proud in the church today? And instantly I knew the answer. I am. That answer hung in my throat, 
I didn't say anything. The line went silent. And then another driver chimed in, and he said he could remember a church in his hometown whose leaders were very prideful people and who fostered an arrogant congregation. But they no longer exist. He said the church disbanded. And I gulped. And as long as I'm being perfectly frank and honest with you, dear flock, and because my office requires it of me, I must say that there is far too much pride here, too. And too little humility, therefore. As the school year begins, I'm mindful, even fearful, to be just totally honest with you, of intellectual pride. I am very thankful for a congregation of families who place much ex- uh, emphasis on, on academic excellence. There's nothing wrong with abundant knowledge and erudition unless it puffs up. And knowledge has a tendency to do that and become a trophy to flag in each other's faces. There's nothing wrong with a superb education, with a handle on the classics, with the ability to quote Latin, unless it becomes as it so easily does, becomes a tool for contests of cerebral one-upmanship. And in a humble congregation, there is no place for intellectual pride. Regardless of the time of the year, we're also Presbyterians, or at least that's what our sign says, and therefore we tend to think that we've crossed every theological T and dotted every I, and we actually imagine that we've cornered the truth, that we understand it all and have a corner on it. And that, my friends, is theological pride. As a church, we worship very deliberately by specific biblical principles, organizing and filling uh, the liturgy of our worship service with those things we've striven to discern as either directly commanded in the Scriptures or deduced from them. And so we are prone to liturgical pride. We're quick to find fault in other churches in many areas and slow to see the areas in which we must repent. And then there is that pride that in just these last few minutes has wrapped its dark black tentacles around the hearts of everyone here who has just now, with great satisfaction, privately identified someone else's pride. With no thought to their own. 
cannot be, dear flock. We cannot continue, either individually or corporately, fostering pride in our hearts and actually expect that the Lord will bless us. To the sin of all sins, we must show no quarter, no mercy. Every self-righteous thought must be extinguished. Every self-congratulatory bone broken. Every little scent of superiority over Christians of other convictions blown out the windows of our hearts and Christ brought in until he fills the place, every nook and cranny with himself. So that we may say with Paul, I've been crucified and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When he is our daily strength, when Christ is the center of our lives, when his cross is the touchstone for everything we think or do or say about ourselves, about other people, his death for sinners, even us, the defining idea of our very existence. Then, and only then, will we have the sort of humility after which we must run and never give up pursuit until it is apprehended. Don't worry again about what someone else says about you. Let it be nothing to you that the world associates humility with humiliation and thinks the less of you for it. Don't concern yourself about the depths to which humility might take you. Don't give a thought again to proving yourself to someone else or over someone else. Leave your name, your reputation, your place in the world and even in this church in his hands. All you need to know is that you are a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Amen.